Last week, by chance, Reflections from Asia returned to that dismal moment in 1938 when Britain was, in Churchill's words, decided, only to be undecided, resolved to be irresolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, all-powerful to be impotent, providing more years for the locusts to eat. This week, returning after a brief sojourn overseas, I was amazed to discover that in the endless pursuit of appeasement, today's British government has also deemed Hong Kong to be a faraway country about whom we know nothing. British Prime Minister David Cameron cannot remember that Britain signed a joint declaration with China pledging that Hong Kong would retain the rule of law for 50 years after returning to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. China issues a white paper clearly diminishing the rule of law here, and Cameron knows nothing. He does not even want Anson Chan and Martin Lee to remind him of what he forgets. I've only had time to read Philip Stevens' superb analysis of this sorry episode in Britain Slams the Door on Hong Kong Freedoms, plus the excellent editorial that accompanies it, both freely available to you all at www.ft.com. I hope that former Prime Minister John Major and former Governor Chris Patton will remember what it was that they persuaded Hong Kongers to accept. Perhaps all those planning to occupy areas of central Hong Kong, which the police are in any event legally required to protect, will now at least consider the necessity of occupying the vacant public areas near the British consulate in Admiralty. Indonesia and Afghanistan are currently completing their respective third democratic direct elections for national president. As they do so, by a curious coincidence, they are both generating political crises which could easily damage the future of their democracy. In both nations, before any final results have been announced, the current elections have increasingly resulted in an bitter and possibly dangerous dispute over who actually won. In both nations, there appears to be a reluctance to tolerate defeat, an intolerance of the other side, and a willingness to insist on victory no matter what, which inevitably strikes at the very heart of any democratic process. To take the Indonesian crisis first, it may come as something of a surprise that this is only the third Indonesian direct presidential election. The first two presidents, Sukarno and then Suharto, never saw fit to subject their autocratic, authoritarian dominance to popular approval. President Yusuf Habibi briefly became president in 1998 by virtue of having been made Suharto's vice president. President Abdul Rahman Wahid, the longtime leader of the Nadaltul Ulama, became the first elected president in 1999, but he was voted in by parliament, not by the people. His vice president, Megawati Sukarnaputri, completed the five-year term when Wahid was impeached by parliament in 2001. So it was only in 2004 that Susilu Bambang Yudhoyono became the first directly elected Indonesian president. 
both in 2004 and then again in 2009, Yudo Hyono was elected and re-elected with over 60% of the popular vote on both occasions, thereby avoiding the former requirement for a runoff election. Now he has to retire, having served the two terms allowed him by the Constitution. There is no provision for a runoff election this year because there are only two candidates contesting the presidency and the vice-presidency. Would-be candidates required to be members of a political party or of a coalition of parties which had won at least 20% of the seats or more than 25% of the popular vote in the April parliamentary Indonesian elections. Only two tickets met those conditions. Former Suharto loyalist and his general in charge of Kostrad, the strategic forces, Prabowo Subianto, led a ticket which secured majority support in Parliament from six political parties with 353 out of 560 parliamentary seats. The then governor of Jakarta, Joko Widodo, secured minority support from four political parties with 207 parliamentary seats. The two tickets made political sense. Prabowo and his running mate, Hatta Rajasa, harked back to the order and development of the Sahato past, for which there is now some nostalgia in Indonesia, especially among the wealthy. Widowo and his running mate, Yusuf Kala, who was a well-regarded vice-president during Yudhoyono's first term, represented the new Indonesia that has arisen since Suharto and which is too little recognised and reported overseas. Until now, Prabowo's had nothing to do with this new Indonesia, just as Widodo, popularly known throughout Indonesia as Jokowi, had nothing to do with the Suharto past. Elizabeth Pisani, author of the book Indonesia Etc., Exploring the Improbable Nation, gives a clear indication of some of the post-Suharto changes. Quote, Indonesia's 250 million people have embraced democracy more rapidly and more successfully than seemed possible just a decade and a half ago when they threw off the 32-year autocracy of Suharto. Over time, Indonesians' talent for reaching amorphous compromises won out. Post-Suharto governance was decentralised across more than 500 Indonesian districts, each with an elected head, its own parliament and its own set of ministries. The system is chaotic, it's inefficient, expensive and wildly popular, especially outside Java, the main island. To Indonesians accustomed to being governed from afar, first by the Dutch and then by a largely Javanese bureaucracy, this accountability is new and it's very precious. Jokowi was a successful part of this new Indonesia arising. Coming from a humble background, he did not enjoy the luxury of a foreign education. He was highly successful as the mayor of the middle-sized central Javanese town of Solo and was re-elected there for a second term with an overwhelming majority. He then got elected and made a very positive impression in the key post of governor of the capital, Jakarta. So it should have come as no surprise that initially 
He led all the early opinion polls by a very wide margin after he announced his candidacy for the presidency. There's a lot of opinion polling in Indonesia these days. The story goes that at one stage, early in the campaign, Jokowi was leading all possible opponents by a whopping 39%. But then he slipped. Campaigning for approval in one town or city was not the same as campaigning nationwide. Jokowi's legions of supporters were often poorly organised. It was Prabowo's rather than Jokowi's election campaign which reminded some observers of Narendra Modi's determined bid for power in this year's Indian general election. But while Modi looked to the future, Prabowo was more concerned with the past. He tapped into the lingering feelings of nostalgia for the Suharto era. Jokowi offended some of his supporters in the business world by seeking to undermine Prabowo by taking a more nationalist line on the economy. As the campaign progressed, Jokowi's initial lead in many opinion polls began narrowing and then, in a very few areas, disappearing altogether. He did make a good impression with his and Kala's performance in the few televised debates between the candidates, but then the question remained how many Indonesians were actually watching. Overall, the opinion polls still showed Jokowi ahead. The only uncertainty was, by how much? Finally, the moment came when an upcoming political crisis clearly threatened. As voting in the third presidential election closed on July the 9th, Jokowi Kala team could not coast in the sure awareness that everyone knew they were still well ahead. Instead, they spent their television and radio time endlessly repeating the polls that showed them ahead. But the Prabowo team were also able to stress the areas where they enjoyed a slight lead. Political observers were left with the clear impression that these assertions of victory and these recitations of the assumed result would continue no matter what, that there would not be any murmurings of mutual congratulation when the counting finally ended. While the counting continued across the vast archipelago, both sides, in other words, insisted upon all or nothing at all without the faintest hint of compromise. So next Tuesday, July the 22nd, will be the day of destiny when the evolving divisiveness in Indonesia could so easily intensify. That is when the Indonesian Election Commission, the KPU, will announce the final result of the presidential election held nationwide on July the 9th. The two tickets, by their use and misuse of opinion polls, have set themselves up to reject it. As in all things Indonesian, one crucial statistic at work will be the reality of the 13,500 islands spread over 3,200 miles east to west across three time zones. Those figures are according to the London Economist, but I've seen other reports of anything up to 15,200 islands and then that there are only 8,000 islands which are inhabited, or maybe it's 10,000. Does anyone really know for certain just how many? But the elusive vastness of the Indonesian archipelago is why there is so much crucial delay between Indonesians voting in any election and then hearing the actual result of their voting. And then there is also provision for yet another month 
after the results are announced next Tuesday before the Indonesian Constitutional Court finally confirms or denies any election challenges that may have been placed before it. Amidst all the waiting, will the looming crisis intensify or will it diminish? The contrast between the way Indonesia and India do things is interesting and maybe it's politically significant. The third largest democracy in the world, Indonesia, chooses to have both its recent presidential and its parliamentary elections last April all on one day right across the archipelago. India, the largest democracy in the world, of course doesn't have presidential elections, but this year it carefully staggered state and parliamentary elections to be held all over the nation over five weeks. In this way, the Indian National Election Commission retains a degree of control both over the electoral bureaucracy as well as the electoral process and the counting. The Indonesian Election Commission, on the other hand, while it is considered to be competent in Jakarta, reportedly has minimal control over its four million local staff who are spread over the whole of the archipelago, with its election commissioners being little-known bureaucrats rather than political heavyweights as some of the commissioners tend to be in India. In a close presidential election in Indonesia, the counting of votes in distant corners of the nation could easily be crucial. So perhaps those recent assertions of victory were not so much signs of bitterness in politics. Perhaps the two sides in the Indonesian election were more concerned to advertise to distant officials of the election commission just how they ought to be counting some of the votes. Undoubtedly, many Indonesian voters have not yet forgotten that only last month, former Chief Justice Achil Mokhtar was sentenced to life imprisonment. His crime? It was to have sold verdicts in local election disputes to the highest bidder. <laughs> There's no time this week for the looming Afghan crisis. More on that next week. This week, Secretary of State John F. Kerry spent a crucial three days in Kabul making intense negotiations before finally reaching a compromise deal between the warring Afghan factions. <laughs> Kerry should also have stopped over in Jakarta on his way home.